Uh, our second speaker is John Bandler. Uh, he's from McMaster University. Uh, he's a professor emeritus where he directs research on surrogate modeling and space mapping for engineering modeling, which I will not try to explain. Uh, John doesn't note it here, but he's also a painter of note. Uh, he was raised in Cyprus, and he researched Cypriot, Turkish, Greek, and British relations for his responses to Duro's Bitter Lemons, as well as his own novels set during the Cypriot War, or Cypriot Civil War. So I will turn it over to John. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you very much, uh, James. Um, more than 50 years have passed since Lawrence Darrow harvested the social landscape of the British colony of uh, Cyprus, taught in its prestigious Pancyprian gymnasium, and served the British propaganda machine as a colonial mouthpiece. An Anglo child of British India, Darrow lived in Greece, Egypt, and Serbia, and became fluent in uh, Greek as well as a Philhellene. Were his observations of the 1950s colonial climate and of the colonized peoples of Cyprus, predominantly Greek and Turkish, tainted? Did he enjoy any special insight into colonial Cyprus because of his linguistic or literary skills? Or did his milieu, his fears and failures, and his personal ambitions corrupt him? Did he contribute original social commentary, or did he recycle the hackneyed ethnic baggage that surrounded him at the time? Regardless, his 1957 Bitter Lemons, still perhaps the most widely known book about the island and its inhabitants, remains on sale at Larnaca Airport's Departure Lounge bookshop. Referring to the 50s Greek Cypriot Emesis uprising against British rule, Darrow writes in Bitter Lemons, quote, And to the nauseating foulness of the street murder of soldiers and policemen was added the disgusting and typically Balkan murder of civilians suspected of being traitors, unquote. Darrow, who confessed in Bitter Lemons that he knew little of Turkish culture and language, Nevertheless, asserts that, quote, the Turks, perhaps through a lack of a definite cultural pattern of their own, or of one worth imposing on the Greeks, left them, the Greeks, freedom of religion, language, and even local government, unquote. The English are effete, Greeks are geniuses, Turks are barbarians. Persuasive literature has the capacity to brainwash the colonial, post-colonial citizen into accepting stereotypes, stereotypes of the oppressed and or stereotypes of the oppressor. For example, in his 1941, The Colossus of Marusi, Henry Miller writes, quote, The goat has now become the national enemy. He will be dislodged as the Turk was dislodged in time, end quote. Another quotation from Miller, quote, I have seen Greeks walking about in the most ludicrous and abominable garb imaginable, and yet I say it sincerely and deliberately, I would a thousand times rather be that poor Greek than an American millionaire. What did Miller know that poor Greeks of his time didn't? 
Like so many of Darwin's own generic observations, the following example at best fills space on a blank page. Quote, The youth of the little island, Cyprus, was bursting with brains, talent, and an industry honestly comparable to that of the Germans or Italians. It would have been more flattering for Durrell to have simply noted that the youth of Cyprus was bursting with brains, talent, and energy. Instead, Durrell elevates himself through his redundant reference to the little island. He apparently also needs to convince a skeptical British reader that the Cypriot youth's industry was, quote, honestly comparable to something else. To the uh, industry of the English or the French, No, the Cypriot youth's industry was honestly comparable to that of Britain's recent enemies, the Germans and the Italians. Once again, Darrell distances himself from the Greek Cypriot, this time by allowing the notion fascist to seep into the reader's mind. If Darrell's fictional characters have given voice to the full spectrum of Darrell's apparently personal opinions, Readers might have marveled at the author's power of journalistic observation of the social landscape, even of the spirit of place. Perhaps in late 50s England, Durrell might have actually impressed those of his Wimbledon or Manchester suburbanite readership, still puzzled as to why Britain's colonial wogs insisted on revolt. In representing the beliefs of the author himself, however, Durrell's sentiments in Bitter Lemons revealed sensitivity to differing ethnicities about as deep as noting that even non-Europeans start life with limbs that grow symmetrically in pairs. In a sense, Darrell writes, it was our failure to project the British ethos. Close quote. Miller, on the other hand, back in 1941, asserts that No wonder Darrell wanted to fight with the Greeks. Who wouldn't prefer to fight beside a Bubulina, for example, than with a gang of sickly, effeminate recruits from Oxford or Cambridge? Miller concedes that, quote, there are a thousand ways of talking and words don't help if the spirit is absent, close quote. And he goes on to admit that, quote, I make no English friends in Greece, close quote. Referring to the English literati in Athens, Henry Miller writes in Colossus, open quote, an evening with those buttery-mouthed jakes left me in a suicidal mood. Nobody really hated them. They were simply insufferable. They were one and all like, the, like animated cartoons from his black book. That's Darrell's novel, close quote. Miller seemed to care less whether the English liked him or not than Darrell did. Not surprisingly then, Darrell's paternalism towards the Cypriot subjects of the British crown, his acquiescence to his colonial heritage, mark him as victim of his time, environment, and his personal circumstances, if not his childhood background in British India. Many of the ethnic sentiments captured in Bitter Lemons are worthy of the extant colonial cocktail banter, on which occasions he might indeed have picked up much of his material all worthy of a mid-20th century British potboiler, or of correspondence with crony Henry Miller, whose professed love of Greeks and second-hand hatred of Turks out-elbowed Durrells. The fortissimo of uh, Miller's 1941 The Colossus of Marusi makes Durrells' 57 bitter lemons feel timid and apologetic. 
Miller might have foreseen Donald Cyprus' dilemma when he wrote, quote, Newspapers engender lies, hatred, greed, envy, suspicion, fear, malice. We don't need the truth as it is dished up to us in the daily papers, close quote. This begs the question, are we better off with the truth as dished out either by Miller himself or by Darrell? Referring to British colonial officials, Darrell said, quote, For they lived by the central colonial proposition which, as a conservative, I fully understand. Namely, if you have an empire, you can't just give away bits of it as soon as us. Close quote. Once commissioned by the governor of Cyprus to be the mouthpiece for the public information office, Darrell appears to have stumbled across the following essential difference between the British colonial government engineering the Cypriots' compliance to colonial rule and the governed Cypriot committing insurrection to colonial rule. In Darrell's words, the truth according to Darrell, open quote, the difference is between a fly fisherman and someone who dynamites from a rowing boat, close quote. At the height of the Cypriot uprising, however, Darrell's Whitehall had ordered close to 40,000 fully armed, disciplined, and coordinated fly fishermen to Cyprus in furtherance of its colonial rule, while Cyprus's Ayoka organization boasted only about 2,000 dynamite-tossing terrorists. Darrell describes his side's troops as, quote, patient, taciturn soldiers, close quote. Uh, opening another quote here. If we had been Russians or Germans, Thoreau explains, the Ennis's problem would have been solved in half an hour. Close quote. How many years should it take of living among Greeks or any other community to reach the conclusion that, quote, no Greek can interpret policy in anything but personal terms? Quote, close quote. And another one. Who ever heard of a revolution by schoolchildren? According to Darrell, these schoolchildren terrorists misdirected their attention at, quote, a bewildering succession of pointless targets, close quote. Perhaps this is explained in Darrell's own words, quote, It is, of course, not easy for youths raised in a Christian society to turn themselves into terrorists overnight. Wrong. It is easy for youths raised in a Christian society to turn themselves into terrorists overnight. Germany's SS probably enjoyed plenty of youthful volunteers, each doubtless exploding with brains and talent. What about Darrell's reference to a succession of pointless targets? Revolutionary or otherwise, schoolchildren endowed with brains, talent, and a penchant for hard work would hardly have have squandered their energy on pointless targets. About the status quo, Darrell writes, quote, The present structure was containable indefinitely by force, of course, even if it grew worse, close quote. But bitter lemons, sorry, bitter lemons leaves the last self-congratulatory lines to the eloquent taxi driver who shunts Darrell to Nicosia's airport. Yes, even Diganis, that's the Ayoka leader, though he fights the British, really loves them. But he will go on, he will have to go on killing them with regret, even with affection. A seemingly level-headed Henry Miller said, quote, 
The enemy of man is not germs, but man himself, his pride, his prejudices, his stupidity, his arrogance, close quote. He went on to say, every man contributes his bit to keeping the carnage going, even those who seem to be staying aloof, close quote. I'd like to digress for a brief comparison with today's Iraq, which no less than Cyprus has enjoyed centuries of domination. Terrorists in thorough Cyprus set homemade bombs, planted dynamite, and shot civilians in the back. A 21st century Arabic-speaking Darul working for the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad would note that today's insurgents relied on IEDs and the derivative DBIDs, vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices, once collectively called car bombs, truck bombs, roadside bombs, etc., Nowadays, an American Darrell's arsenal of social commentary would hardly include observations on one Iraqi sect prone to fidgeting like Greeks, or another posing with reptilian concentration like Turks, or indeed those specific sects that melted under his embrace. He would hardly gain mileage in cocktail parties in Baghdad's green zone by noting that Iraq's use seemed to him to be bursting with talent, a surprising level of grey matter, and, quote, an industry honestly comparable to that of the Germans or Italians, close quote. However, today's suicide bombings offer ample enough opportunities for cultural stereotyping. But today's Darrow, like the original Darrow, might be correct in lamenting that, quote, the state of the police force was deplorable, underpaid, inefficiently equipped, inadequate in size, it was totally unprepared. Close quote. Our Iraq station Darrow might recall the ratio 10 to 1, that in Cyprus there were about 10 British-loving Greek Cypriots for every British soldier, and far more than 10 soldiers for every terrorist combatant. On this scale, it would require at least four million American soldiers to subdue the America-hating Iraqis. United States General Eric Shinseki once advised Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld that Iraq required something of the order of several thousand troops. Several, sorry, several hundred thousand troops. If Shinseki had proposed a million troops, instead of just being fired, he might have been locked up in an institution. A 21st century Henry Miller would still denounce American-made bombs regardless of whether they were of a precision variety guaranteed to perform according to specifications if used as directed, that is. Even a socially resensitized Miller wouldn't be derailed by a claim that today's bombs were assembled by equal opportunity subcontractors to bid-winning Defense Department prime contractors who collectively offer great health plans, pension plans, perhaps even daycare centers. In the Colossus of Marusi, Henry Miller writes the following about a certain Greek man in prison for murder. I would prefer to be the prison keeper even without the additional three cents. I would take the 20 years in jail too as part of the bargain. I would prefer to be a murderer with a clear conscience, walking about in tatters and waiting for the next year's corn of crop than the president of the most successful industrial corporation in America. The Greek killed only one man in righteous anger, whereas the successful American businessman is murdering thousands of innocent men, women, and children in his sleep every day of his life. Close quote. Sorry, long quote. 
Consider CNN, June 20, 2007, the Cafferty file. There are only 10 people in the United States Embassy in Baghdad who speak and write fluent Arabic, Jack Cafferty reported. Jack Cafferty's conclusion, only 10 people can order lunch in Iraq. As long ago as 1941, Miller wrote, I can't stand this idea which is rooted in the minds of little peoples that America is the hope of the world. Wherever we breathe, we poison and destroy, close quote. However, just as Darrell fled to England when the yoke of fighters started stepping on his toes, Henry Miller abandoned his beloved Greeks to wartime Athens and opted for the safe haven of California. What about the language issue in Cyprus in 1953? Darrell writes, quote, I was astonished to find how few Cypriots knew good English and how few Englishmen the dozen words of Greek which cement friendships. In revolutionary situations, these things can become the most powerful political determinant. Close quote. In October 1956, which is about the time I arrived in England too, same as Darrell, from Cyprus. In October 1956, from the safe haven of England's green and pleasant land, and after beating a hasty exit from mid-turmoil Cyprus, Darrell wrote the following piece to Henry Miller, quote, Cyprus is so tragic it doesn't bear talking about. Clearly we can't go on being a great power if our political grasp is so elementary. Russia can do it because she shoots to kill. But we can neither shoot nor think, it seems. Never mind, I'm well out of that lot. Meanwhile, October is all sunshine and green grass and smoke from cottage chimneys. Nothing has changed. The Englishman still laughs without removing his pipe. His wife wears a hat and carries a lapdog. Everything is serene and bland as suet. Bland as suet. After devouring Henry Miller's Colossus of Marusi, that's how a reread of Darrell's Bitter Lemons strikes me. Darrell might be credited with the romantic notion that an artist like himself is determined by the place in which he finds himself, the artist's sensitivity to the spirit of place, but I rather lean towards Darrell's life and art being determined by time, social environment, fiscal circumstances, but above all by his upbringing and his revolt against it or his acceptance of it. In the recent words of my colleague John Blakopoulos, Professor of Chemical Engineering at McCarthy University, 400 years under the Turks is a frequently heard cliché in Greece but all of Greece's ills, whether it is the standard of living, impolite behavior, bad driving, frequent strikes, or poor hospital care. Close quote. Like their Greek mainland counterparts, Greek Cypriots have survived centuries of imperial subjugation by the Ottomans. Britain's legacy in Cyprus is 15 years of post-independence intercommunal strife, culminating in the forced partition of the island by Turkey in 1974. Male literati, perhaps no less than anyone else driven by the selfish gene, and particularly those who have built their careers out of being dispossessed, Darrell and Miller fill this category well, are bound to fall in love with exotic foreign landscapes and exotic foreign women. Such infatuations seem almost prerequisite to their art. Their loves, egos, fears, and obsessions, however, wouldn't gain literary toeholds if the artist hadn't first cast off the shackles of reason. Henry Miller tells us, quote, The Greek woman, 
even when she is cultured, is first and foremost a woman. Close quote. I'm sure Darrow himself believed that about Greek women too, if not just about every other woman he ever set eyes on. Given the revelations of his biographers, it seems reasonable to assume that the dysfunctional, fictional relationships Darrow created mirrored his state of mind and gave play to demons that nipped at the edges of his family life. A lyrical Darrow strides confidently center stage through the alleys, the taverns, the classrooms, the beaches, the colonial hallways, and the upper-crust tea parties of bitter lemons, alas, with scant backdrop credits to either his mother or his child, and none to his then-wife. Like Henry Miller, Darrell invoked the comfortable known, even if only to hammer it. In retrospect, Darrell's tale smacks of a reverse honey trap, of a love-starved male's efforts to woo a mistress through a hastily prepared slideshow of expurgated family snapshots. No wonder the small, ill-equipped band of Ayoka fighters brought the once mighty British Empire to its knees. Over their lifespans, Darrell and Miller have perhaps served up groundbreaking aesthetic diversions for the Western elite, in part because the science of simple logic probably held little sway with them. Simple logic alone, though, might have unshackled them from their self-serving stereotype and propaganda. James Gifford argues that, quote, Darrell goes to great lengths in the Alexandria Quartet to throw the reader back upon his own resources, close quote, perhaps. But Darrell also goes to great lengths to strap the reader of bitter lemons into Darrell's own colonial straitjacket. Thank you.